Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode is sponsored by Try Vegan, a vegan meal home delivery service that is nutritious and delicious and makes your life easier. Based out of New Jersey, they deliver throughout the Northeast. Check out more details on their website, tryveganmealprep.com. And you can get 25% off your first order with the promo code LITYOGA. So go vegan. Good movement and welcome to Redefining Yoga, a lit yoga podcast, which is designed to investigate all aspects of the modern evolution of yoga from my background as a physical therapist and lover of movement. My mission is to help everyone find freedom through safer and smarter movement patterns so together we can be uplifted, benefiting all beings. Today is Friday with Friends and I have an old friend of mine, wonderful Jeremy Ingalls. He is a professor at Penn State. He is co-owner of Yoga Lab in State College, Pennsylvania. And he went through my lit teacher training about four or five years ago. Welcome, Jeremy. Yeah. <laughs> Hi, Laura, it's good to see you. It's great to see you. Uh, this is, we're recording this during a pandemic. We're both not in yoga studios, but teaching yoga virtually. How is it going for you teaching yoga virtually? And then you're gonna be teaching your classes at Penn State, maybe virtually, or how are you gonna be doing that? It was initially very weird um, to teach yoga on Zoom. Um, I think that, uh, you know, we have built this yoga studio in State College that has this fantastic community of practitioners, and uh, we call it a guru-free zone. And so it's a place that's really democratically organized, and uh, it's not a place where anyone is trying to lord over anyone else. And uh, and so it's just a wonderful community that brings, uh, you know, students and people from the town together. And uh, I think a lot of us, we, you know, we really miss that initially. I'm um, getting to see everyone in person. There's something magical about being together in a yoga space and moving and breathing together, moving well, right? And, uh, but... I think that the Zoom yoga has brought some unexpected joys, actually, for us. Um, one of them is that you know, we've had wonderful teachers who've graduated from our teacher training programs at our studio. We've done four of them now. And in a college town, people tend to move. You know, they, they leave. Um, but it's been great to reconnect with um, some of our uh, teachers who've graduated. And they've been teaching online for us through our platform, even though they're in... Philadelphia or California or Colorado. And uh, 
And it's been amazing to reconnect with um, friends who've left town too. Um, some of our dearest friends live in Ohio now, and uh, they've been coming back and taking online classes with us. And uh, people in Germany and Italy, and uh, and that's been amazing. Um, just expanding this community outward, and so um, you know, I think that like anything, we adapt and we do the best that we can. And uh, there's positives and negatives about any platform, but I think that yoga obviously will survive, but who knows what it's going to look like in a couple of years. But it's, it's been uh, better than I could have expected and at times really wonderful, actually. I totally agree with you. I feel like I would never have imagined a celluloid screen could bring connection in the way it has. And I've seen it in the classes and in my teacher trainings that I've been running virtually People are really bonding and really holding space for each other in the similar way they would in person. And they are adapting to, to that kind of lack of intimacy physically the present. But there is also almost a little bit of a wall that's, that's down because uh, it's like we fill up the space that's needed. Like the vacuum is, we're, we're kind of filling up the, the need to get to know each other um, maybe in a, in a deeper way because we don't we can't rely on the physical presence. So, I think that there has been some really surprising joyful things. I would love to ask you because, you know, I know that not only do you practice yoga, you've been practicing for a while, you've gone through multiple teacher trainings, you've gone to India, but you've also written books about yoga and philosophy. I mean, that is kind of your you you have a specialization in several aspects of your philosophy, but can, what is yoga to you after experience it in your body, experience it in your practice and your teaching, and then in your research, what, how would you encapsulate yoga? Yeah, that's such a good question. I, you know, I think that you and I have been on very parallel tracks in some ways. I mean, they're overlapping tracks too, so they're not completely parallel. Um, but you know, you've, What's so inspiring about the work that you do is really how you've reassessed this physical practice of yoga. And yoga, like any tradition, often relies on tradition. And we think that just because someone did something like this 20 years ago or 50 years ago or 100 years ago or mythically thousands of years ago, it's how we have to continue doing things. But in some ways, our knowledge advances, right? And... Uh, we know a lot about the physical body now. And, um, and so the lit practice, the yoga stream practice, incorporates all of this new knowledge in order to develop this wonderful biomechanical practice, right? And, uh, and I love it. I feel like I've been on a parallel path trying to better understand the history of yoga philosophy. And I labored for a long time under the misapprehension that because yoga was ancient, it was timeless, and it never changed. And that's not the case. Of course, it's not the case because humans developed it, right? And humans change over time. Humans argue, humans disagree, humans get things wrong. And so I've been really interested in the history of yoga. Yoga is fascinating because in Sanskrit, it has over 80 different meanings. And they range so wide that yoga can mean almost anything. And I think that's true in our culture um, too. I mean, we talk about so many different kinds of yoga, but I know that in my body and in my practice, when I practice the kind of yoga that you and I practice and teach, 
I feel better. I feel calmer. I feel more centered and I feel more connected. And I think that that to me is really the heart of yoga. The essence of yoga is about um, connection. Um, it's about connection and about being able to see things more clearly, um, connecting to the things that matter most to us, connecting to these deep core values that we have, and clearing the way so that we can express those values more, I don't know, more eloquently, more forcefully, more effectively. And so, yeah, so that's kind of a wandering definition of yoga, but I don't know how you can offer anything other than that, actually. I mean, we have lots of very succinct definitions of yoga that are out there. But anytime I hear someone define yoga really clearly, I want to know more about where that definition comes from and what they mean by their terms, um, as I know you do too. <laughs> right. I think we are so similar in so many ways, but I think the the primary like real link we both have is is of inquiry and of yeah. of of questioning and being curious and not being attached which is a real yoga practice of not being attached to some idea of what something should or should not be but like you said evolving the the notion of the practice as we have evolved as humans and our needs to connect differently are you know, we're at a different stage in civilization. So in that kind of vein of inquiry, what are like, I don't want to give you a number, but just like a fun, like five, what are the five biggest myths or misnomers about yoga philosophy? Mm, Oh gosh. A BuzzFeed list of the top five. (laughs) Yes, I know. (laughs) Here, I'll let you think about it while I give one kind of, and, and, and then you can tie it into this, because I'm sure you've also heard this. When people have practiced or they used to come into the studio and they had heard about this type of practice, a few people who had been longtime practitioners of some other kind of hatha form would say to me, well, I'm really used to practicing a more spiritual type of yoga, but I want to try this. And I would like, my rankles, I would like, I would be like, what? And I sometimes, what I learned is I had to ask, what do you mean by that? Because I really was curious. Like, why would you, why are we bucketing these things and saying like, if you practice in a physical way that's paying attention to core integration, that is less spiritual than sitting and chanting words you might not understand uh, because people did it thousands of years ago. And that always would bother me because I thought, I feel like you're you're missing the whole point is that it is a gateway to raising consciousness, which is you need to do that in lots of different avenues. And one is through the body, which is an easy way. Uh, so maybe uh, piggybacking off of that, what what do you think uh, the, the myth? So I think that's a big myth is that you have to, you know, to be spiritual means that you have to somehow be still or chant or you know, be serious or blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that's wrapped up with some really interesting myths about the relationship between the mind and the body and the spirit. And I think that, and this is when you study the history of yoga philosophy, like I've tried to do, um, it gets really confusing because oftentimes yoga philosophers will present one philosophy through their lens. And so you'll get this mixing up of things. And so 
Like Patanjali, for instance, who is, I think for a lot of people, the yoga philosopher like par excellence, right? I mean, he's uh, the sage of sages. Um, Yoga Alliance really has recently canonized Patanjali. And when Americans first encountered Patanjali in a really serious way in the 1890s, they did that um, through the words of this um, yogi named Swami Vivekananda, who's a really important figure in the history of yoga. And Vivekananda presented Patanjali in a completely backwards way, where Patanjali is a dualist. Um, Patanjali believes that there is spirit, there's purusha, and there's matter, there's material, there's life, there's prakriti. And so those two things are separate. Um, And I think that for a lot of people, when they think that a physical practice is somehow less spiritual, I think they're, they're echoing that sentiment that somehow my spirit is different than my body, which is a tradition that we have in the West through Christianity as well. The body's looked at as being really suspect, right? Um, it's the agent of sin. To me, I think that that's one of the myths of yoga that we really have to overcome because I think that the spirit the mind and the body are one. And I think that that is really interesting in yoga because one of the definitions of yoga that often is given is like marriage or union or yoking, right? Which is is one of the classical definitions that goes back to the Upanishads. What is it that's being yoked or married? I wonder that because to me, it seems like all of this is already one. Like it's already integrated. And so it's not like I need to integrate my mind with my body because if I do a nice yoga practice, my mind will settle, um, which to me shows that those two things are intimately related. Why is it after sitting in meditation or doing a physical practice, or for me doing a physical practice and then sitting in meditation, because it's so much easier actually to be focused after I've moved my body why is it that everything feels clearer? Right? Why is it that my spirit feels uplifted? It's because all those things are integrated. And so I think another myth with yoga is the sense that it needs to be about somehow connecting things that are disconnected, when in fact, I think actually really it should be much more about recognizing the, recognizing the connections that are already there. I... Uh, I'm working on a new book that's going to be about breathing. Um, So right now I'm just calling it a philosophy of breathing, but it's going to be partly a history of how people in the West, um, but also in the East have thought about the breath and breathing. And um, to me, one of the amazing things about thinking about breathing is like breathing is the place where the self dissolves, like into the world. When air comes in, it's air that's recycled. I mean, it's like we're breathing stardust, right? I mean, that sounds like hyperbole, but it's true. And so I think that that sense of like, what are we doing in yoga is one of the myths, right? Um, For a long time, I thought it was all about connection, but I've started to reassess that. I think like you said, another myth is that sense of there's somehow something not spiritual about a physical practice. I think another myth is that yoga is timeless, that yoga dates back five, six, ten thousand 10,000 years, and that it's never changed, that there always have been these great sages who um, have been practicing yoga in particular ways. 
And we have to do that too, because others have done that before us. Um, and empirically, that's just not true. I mean, there have been people who have talked about yoga for a long time, and there are without question great masters in the world. But I think tradition is not usually a good reason to do something. Like you said, inquiry is so important. I think we should always be asking why. Always. Yeah. So those are, those are a few. I would say well, uh, yeah, those were great. And what is your what are your thoughts on appropriation? This is another very, yeah. you know, I feel like yoga goes through these different waves of, and and I am open minded to to really investigate any ways that I would be appropriating yoga that is not to the you know to the benefit, but to the detriment. And I still just really feel like. You know, appropriation is just that. It's taking something that is, in its essence, not giving credit or actually to the detriment of whatever culture or, or group of people you're taking it from. What are your thoughts on this notion of appropriation from the West or by the West of the uh, practice of yoga that was purportedly started, <laughs> that, you know, or that we believe to be started in the East? I think that all of us who practice yoga in the West and the United States have an obligation to try to understand the history of yoga a little bit better. I think that I, I think that's foundational to being really serious about the study of yoga. And I think that part of studying that history is recognizing how awful the British colonization of India was for the people there. And you don't fully realize it until you've been to like a British plantation in India. Like I, I've had the chance to visit and just the massive looting of wealth. And um, I mean, I could, I could talk about that for a long time. I think that is incumbent upon us to recognize as well. But at the same time, I think it's worth recognizing that yoga, like any spiritual practice, continues to change over time. You know, Buddhism began in India, and uh, the reasons that you know Buddhism lapsed in India are really fascinating. But Buddhists talk about how it starts in India and then translates or transitions into China, and it becomes something new in China, um, and then it becomes something new in Japan, and then it becomes something new in Southeast Asia, and then it becomes something new in the West, in the United States. Um, and I feel like that's happened with yoga as well, um, that we're seeing practices that are informed sometimes by Indian philosophy that are being directed towards very different ends than they are in India. Um, and to me, I think that's okay, um, as long as we're doing our best to try to understand that history. Um, I think another aspect of you know, the present reality of yoga that we have to recognize is how wrapped up yoga in India is with Hindu fundamentalism. And with a nationalist, very conservative movement in India that is extremely anti-Muslim. And yoga is wrapped up in that kind of nationalism right now uh, in complicated ways in India. When you travel through India, you see, like over the last 10 years, like I saw more of them there was about a four-year lapse between trips to India. You see many more temples to Hanuman and to Ram there now. Uh, just 
since this um, very conservative Hindutva party's been in power in India. And I think that's also worth recognizing. Yoga is so complicated. There are also traditions of physical practice and breathing that are very Western, that are related to but different from Indian practices of like pranayama or uh, the chakras and the nadis. Um, And a lot of our contemporary yoga is deeply informed by those Western traditions, almost as much as they are by the Eastern traditions. Um, So we layer that complexity over the history as well. Honestly, it makes my head hurt trying to um, think through these questions. Uh, I wish that there were easy clear answers. Um, and I, I, don't, I don't see them if, uh, if they are, but maybe wrestling with them is really what it's about. Yeah. And, and I feel like I, I absolutely agree. I think it's, like you said, incumbent upon us to have some knowledge of the history, but also not have like this locked down view of it. You know, I hear so many people really talking as it, like almost like they're in, you know, it is a religion and that you don't mess with it, you know, and, and like you said, with Yoga Alliance, like canonizing Patanjali, but doing that to any um, part of the history with like kind of picking it, like cherry picking it apart, I don't think will serve anybody, especially if that's how you're practicing it in a very black and white way. Um, yeah, I think that it really, I don't know, I think about the difference between belief and practice, um, where sometimes I think that people want to turn yoga or yoga philosophy or their understanding of yoga into this thing that you have to believe in. And the path to liberation or to easing of suffering becomes believing in this thing. So then yoga becomes like a religion. And to me, I think the problem with that is that it shuts down inquiry and critical thought. Whereas to me, I want to take these ideas as provocations to study, to practice. Um, I want to try them out. I want to see how they sit with me. I want to see how they sit with my students. I want to see how they sit with all of us. Do they help us to ease suffering, to live more harmoniously, to build a more just world? And if they do, that's awesome. And if they don't, that's also worth knowing. But I'm not going to put my belief or faith in something that's going to lead to the kind of world that I don't want to live in, I guess, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. It does. And I think, I think the point, too, is this, this source of inquiry and agency is like, what resonates? You know, I, have, I was actually at Yoga Lab doing a weekend intensive, and there was a Q&A for just yoga teachers. And we were in a circle and I just said, hey, why don't you ask me or tell me what is, what's on your mind? Like, what is something you want to learn more about? What are you struggling with as a yoga teacher? Because that'll help me answer questions more effectively than me just sitting here talking. And it was fascinating how so many of the teachers, A, felt very um, uninspired, phony, you know, and one in particular said to me, you know, I feel like I just like at the beginning of class. I don't really know what to do. I, I feel like I should be like reading some yoga sutras or something like that. And I said, well, why? Why Why do you feel like you should be reading that? I mean, do you like them? Do they, do they, do they like teach you something? Or And she, she was, she's like, I, I don't know. I just feel like I should be. And I'm like, that's the, yeah. 
So no, you shouldn't, you shouldn't read them if you don't feel like any connection. This is not like a law and order. It is, it is really um, teaching from a place, I think, of each of us investigating, again, what really resonates and what has brought us to a, a more, a place of more oneness, like you're speaking of. And, and speaking from that place and then being open to more layers to it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that's really nicely said. And I think that it it speaks to the messiness of yoga, just that this is a, it's, it's an ancient topic. It touches on issues that are just elemental to the human condition, right? Life and death and suffering and happiness and um, freedom and bondage. And I mean, like these are, these are the kinds of things you stay up really late at night talking about with your friends when we could all do that. And we'll do that again, hopefully someday soon. But it also, you know, it, it crosses into the domain of religion sometimes and also spirituality and then the physical practice, which is wrapped up in all of that. And trying to know as a 200-hour certified teacher trainer, what on earth am I doing with all of this is, is really challenging. I think humility and openness is so important to life, but also to yoga. And so often I find myself saying, I just don't, I don't know. Um, I want to, I want to try, I want to learn and I want to try to find out more about that. But I also find myself more often than not saying, okay, I understand that now. And I don't, I don't, it doesn't work for me. That's not how I experience things. Um, But at least I I put the work in to try to understand it, but I'm not just going to parrot things that don't feel true to me. Um, Yes. Yeah. I think that's really, uh, that that's harder to do for people because we all yeah. every a lot of people function better off of a script and a manual <laughs> you know you know i think this is this we're seeing this in all the thread lines in culture and society and uh, you know governmental policies everything it's like can is this serving everyone is this including everyone is this benefiting everyone and that's a really hard um, thread line uh, to, yeah. to 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 follow, but I think the the endeavor to to do that through our practice and our teaching is um, it's it's an imperative. Yeah, and it's such an interesting moment in yoga's history because just with this great reckoning we're having in our culture with um, with gender and race and. Um, homophobia and transphobia and all of these just aberrant, abhorrent ways of being in the world. I think that it's going to be really fascinating to see what what comes of yoga as you know we emerge on the other side of this pandemic, hopefully. And I'm really hopeful that it is a much more inclusive practice. Um, you know, that really does work towards the betterment of all beings. And I think that that, thinking about myths of yoga, I know this from my academic work as someone who studies language as well. Um, It's really easy to put a catchphrase on a bumper sticker or to repeat it on Facebook or something like that. But it's harder to really put it into practice. Um, And so we talk a lot about oneness namaste om i mean all of these invocations of oneness and yoga 
but what does oneness actually practically mean? Um, how does it make any difference in my life and how I live my life if I have come to the realization that things are one? And that's a question that I'm really, really interested in. And another question is, if, if we genuinely mean that yoga should serve all beings, um, the betterment of all beings, what, what does that entail? And it's not going to just mean repeating the ways that we're living our lives. It's actually going to demand change. It won't necessarily be easy because so many of the habits and conditioned ways that we live our life, have been taught to live our life in this country are not premised on interconnectedness or oneness or being concerned about all beings. Um, they're much more individualistic and much more divided and cut off and um, much more about accumulating stuff. And, uh, and so you know, I think that collectively together, and I think it's something we have to do together because I, I, I believe that we're smarter together than we are individually. You know, what does it mean to actually put our money where our mouth is in yoga if we really believe in some of these things? And I think if we seriously consider that, I think that yoga can become a force for good. I break with some of my friends who are really pessimistic about the state of yoga. I mean, I know a lot of yoga scholars who have just really given up, you know, just yoga's so broken. There's a podcast. I'm trying to think that talks about that too. Yoga's dead, I think it is. Yeah, I think that's what it is, right? And I don't know. I, I I'm an optimist from out on the plains, and uh, I'm from the south. I, I know. I was just thinking this. I was talking about it yesterday in my yoga class. Like, is it that we're just like I wake up in the morning and I'm thinking, well, at least I have my, you know, I'm like, at least I have my health. At least I'm able to, you know, I'm like always looking at the upside of a situation, I was like, how much of that is just you're born with? And I think there's probably a good degree you are. And then of course, you know, your your family, like that, it's, it's where you grow up and the people around you and all that, that are also reinforcing that. But, and, and actually the challenging times are what, what call upon our inner strength to be optimistic because it is the hope that will propel us to be activists as opposed to just bystanders and, you know, just watch the ship sink. You know, we've, we're, I'm going to go down trying at the very least. So, you know, I mean, I just, yeah, I just, I think that someone said this, I mean, many people, but many, uh, one journalist wrote this and, and, and it was like a very catchy title. And it was like, oh, I actually like Trump after all, you know, it was just really to get you to to, to read it. You can read it, sure. Yeah. And essentially what he was saying is, I really hated him, thought he was the devil, all this stuff. But what I've realized is he is bringing light to everything. He is the virus that is exposing all of the the hatred and, and the weaknesses and the cracks and this, and that have been in existence. It's not him, but he has elevated uh, a lot of it to a new level. And so I think that everything that you, that needs to change has to, for the exposure of it needs to be present so that we can really fully see it. And it's too bad, you know, like with the, the hundreds of years of, 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 of racial inequities and injustices that it took that long to, you know, kind of like on it, you know, turn on our heels to be like, whoa, and really recognize what many black people have been 
experiencing for decades, if not you know centuries. And it's it is unfortunate, but it's here now, and and so we can't shut the door. Like we can't you know close the eyes. We have to, if not for for ourselves, for for others in the service for others, we have to really have that that hope. Yeah. One of my favorite authors, I just, her book just happens to be right here. Um, she's, her name is Rhonda McGee. She's a professor, a, a law professor at the University of San Francisco. Um, but she wrote this just wonderful book called The Inner Work of Racial Justice, Healing Ourselves and Transforming Our Communities Through Mindfulness. Um, she's a, a, just a staggeringly amazing mindfulness teacher um, and a social justice activist. But she defines justice as love and action for the alleviation of suffering. And I love that. I mean, I like that, that, I do too. I just, that's been my, I, I just think that's so beautiful. Love and action for the alleviation of suffering. And, um, you know, she and other mindfulness teachers, especially teachers um, who are Black and who can speak to experiences of racism in ways that I can't. I mean, I just can't, I can't know. Um, But she talks about how if we're going to achieve something like justice, we have to get better at turning towards the really difficult problems rather than away from them. And it would be so much easier just to to turn away from them and shut our eyes you know, to run off to the forest or, you know, practice, you know, sannyasa or something like that. And I think this is a moment where a lot of people really are turning towards the problems. I mean, because the problems are just, they're there and it, you know, you can't turn away from them. And I think that if the yoga community does turn towards these problems collectively, I think that there's real potential for justice. You know, I think a lot of us are trying in our small little ways every day to contribute to that larger goal. And uh, and I think you're right about President Trump has really, he's exemplified so many of the ugliest tendencies of American history. And, and then now they're there. They're there for us to see. I've been amazed at, I don't, I've been calling it oneness panic. I think that you know, in February and March, I think there was this moment where a lot of Americans went, oh, whoa, like, wow, we are interconnected <laughs> in a really p- powerful way. Look at this virus and the way it's spreading. And it's been fascinating to see what that oneness panic has come to. I think for some people, it's been awakening to interconnectedness in really powerful ways. I think for other people, it's been the exact opposite of like turning around and rebelling against it, right? Um I think for other people, it's been kind of retreating into forms of oneness that are really, really toxic, right? Um, my first book was called Enemyship, where I was thinking about a way of bonding that's kind of like like friendship, but the opposite of friendship. So friendship, we come together because we like each other and we share interests. Enemyship is the kind of bond where we don't have any of that. We just have a shared enemy. And it's like the lowest form of oneness. It's so easy, but so effective too, right? In moments of national crisis, that's one of the first things that leaders will do is point to a shared enemy. And so we've seen that repeatedly over and over again over the past few months of people turning away from this basic interconnectedness that we have and scapegoating people as enemies. Um, 
And I feel like, again, that's something that we can work with in our yoga practice right? um, through, uh, through this practice, seeing how we have those tendencies ourselves. Because we all do. I mean, because we're human. Um, but we need, needn't act on them. Well, this is, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm just overwhelmed with your, your intelligence and spirit. And tell us about this new book and how we can find it and where people can learn more about you, Jeremy. Oh, sure. Um, yeah. So, um, I've got a new book that's coming out. It's called the ethics of oneness, Emerson Whitman and the Bhagavad Gita. And it's, um, being published by the university of Chicago press. It'll be out in, I think January, 2021. And, uh, it's, a book that tries to tell a different history of yoga in the United States. Um, a history, I argue, that's been really forgotten, actually, and displaced by some of the things that come later. Um, and the book speaks to a lot of the things that you and I talked about today. I mean, things that you know I really care deeply about, and I think that well, I know that you do too. Um, and uh, and so that'll be out. It'll be available wherever books can be bought. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, um, if people are interested, my website is uh, jeremydavidingles.com. And uh, I've got some information about me and my books. And, uh, and you can also check out um, uh, State College Yoga Lab, which is the studio that um, I started with my amazing, brilliant wife, Anna. And... Uh, you know, four other really great yogis here um, in State College, um, all of us having trained with Lara, um, which is one of the things that brought us all together initially. Um, and uh, I teach a class on Sunday mornings, which ironically is called Yoga Unplugged, that, you know, we're, <laughs> we're pretty plugged in with Zoom right now. Um, <laughs> I, uh, but the idea of that class really is to take an hour out of the day to unplug from the news to unplug from expectations, from definitions, from um, what we feel like we have to be doing and taking an hour to really reconnect to our bodies and our breath and our spirit um, so that we can come back to the rest of the day and the rest of the week a little bit more clear and recharged. But thank you, Laura, for having This that. is amazing. I... Love- I, uh, I <laughs> Any opportunity I get to talk with you is such a joy because you are, without question, one of my favorite people on the planet. And so, uh, so much love to you. And so much love to you. Yeah. Thank you so much, Jeremy. It's, I'm sure people are going to want you back. So, listeners, go check out Jeremy um, at all those places and they'll be in the show notes as well. He is um, just an epic human being. um, And I'm just so proud to have him as a friend. And as always, I'm pulling for you. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.